Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, emptiness, the things we do in the shadows, and much more. My name is Michael W. Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with Douglas Tatarin. Douglas Tatarin received his PhD in 1991 and worked as a professor for 10 years in epidemiology and psychosocial oncology. In 2001, he entered private practice, where he applied and continued evolving what he now refers to as the bio-emotive framework, a new way of understanding the emotional system and its unappreciated role in many of our most common mental health disorders. Doug began what became a very intensive meditation practice back in 1975, and he and his wife receive and give teachings within the Namgil Rinpoche stream of the Karma Kagyu lineage. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode called Meditation, Emotions, and the Bio-Emotive Framework with Doug Tatarin. Doug, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Uh, It's nice to be here, Michael. I've been looking forward to this. Me too. You're already sort of quasi-famous from the podcast that I did fairly recently with Chula Dasa, where he talked at length about the work you two did together. And that podcast has really caused quite a lot of intense discussion on Reddit and many other places. So I'm really looking forward to digging in with you about your work and your theories about meditation and psychology and emotions and all that. So hopefully you're ready to go here. Ready to go. I'm looking forward to this. And that quasi-fame that's emerged has been an interesting thing to have to deal with. Uh, I've been kind of very used to hanging out here in the nowhere billness of Manitoba. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't get much more nowhere than Manitoba in one way. Yeah, it's been nice. And it's also been nice to start having dialogues with people about this material. So I'm looking forward to more of that. So that's something I'm curious about. Are you getting a lot of, I don't know, email and inquiries and so on about these topics since the podcast came out? Quite a bit, actually, and all of it very positive. My website, it's in a constant state of development. I wasn't even monitoring its hits, but it was probably like three, 400 hits a month. And now I'm more like three to 4,000 hits a month. So you and uh, Daniel have certainly garnered a lot of attention towards this material. Yeah, Daniel Thorson being the host of the podcast Emerge, and the two of you talked about your bio-emotive framework process on that podcast recently. And so if listeners are interested in that, I really recommend you go check out the Emerge podcast episode with Doug on it. So Doug, the first thing I'd just like to get a handle on is your background, both as a meditator and as a psychologist, just briefly to kind of orient us. Okay, I'll start with the meditation first because I started that first. Back when I was 15 years old, uh, 1975, I picked up a book called The Science of Breath and read through it, kind of fell in love with it, so to speak, which is a weird thing to think about for a little manual like that. And I started doing the meditation, just a breathing meditation, what I call rectangular breathing. And it wasn't long before I was laying down and doing it for an hour and then for two hours, and then for three hours. 
And then I guess within a couple of years, I was kind of doing 60 second inhalations, 30 second holds, you know, 60 second exhalations, 30 second holds. And I guess hanging out in John estates and things, though, you know, when you're 16 years old and there's nobody around to tell you what's going on, I guess it was self-reinforcing, right? I was enjoying those deep bliss states and kind of the natural inquiry that comes from watching your mind from those places. So, And this was a pure pranayama book? Pure pranayama, yeah. yeah. And who's the author? Oh, I'd have to look. It's a common name. Maharishi? Does that make sense? Maharishi, yeah. Maharishi? I'm not good with names in general, so you'll have to correct me <laughs> often on that area. But it was an excellent little guidebook, and it started me off, and uh, I continued that practice for quite a number of years. And when I got to university, I guess in 78, 79, I actually managed to work 20 or 30 hours a week while I was doing a full-time practice and getting a fair bit of partying in because I was basically able to get by on less than an hour's sleep a night. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. How much meditation were you doing at that time? Um... Well, basically, not a lot because I was actively moving, but at, at another level, there's a part of me that was kind of always in that meditative state, I guess more of that Rigpa Sati kind of place in retrospect. But when I did lay down to sleep, I would, you know, go into bliss states really, really quickly. And they're quite rejuvenative. There was one time we actually had little cots in a room for naps at the university. And I remember going, I had 10 minutes to a class and I went and laid down to take a nap and I woke up just in a panic because I felt I must have slept for a couple hours because, you know, I was kind of pushing the no sleep limits, right? And I got up and I looked at the clock and I was so disoriented because I couldn't figure out what had happened. And then I realized that the time between me laying down to go into that, you know, meditative state and waking up, the second hand on the clock hadn't even gone around once. <laughs> wow. And I had thought I'd been, you know, napping for a couple hours. So, you know, that's that timeless part of meditation. And I guess in retrospect, using Chuladasa's language, I had developed samadhi, but I hadn't developed a lot of sati at the time. So I didn't mm. have that kind of background awareness of the state that I was in. Fascinating. So what were you studying at university? I went into psychology. Originally, I was in the advanced placement in physics. So I was going to go in that direction. But then when I discovered there was an entire discipline that studied the mind, I decided to get involved with that. And I got in pretty intensely. In my first year of university as an undergraduate, I joined two different labs and started doing my own research. By the end of my first year, I was a research assistant and uh, running experiments. And that's where I realized that if I was going to continue in psychology with the interests I had, which was very much about parapsychology and, you know, understanding the unconscious and things, that I needed to kind of know their language of battle, which was research and statistics. And so I was lucky enough to get trained in those and specialize that throughout my graduate career. I was a research consultant and methodologist and psychometrician. I got my PhD that way as a consultant, and then I got hired as an epidemiologist in medicine and psychosocial oncology for my research in the mind-body relationship. So I've run those kind of two things parallel, my own interest in the unconscious and the role of stress and emotions in health and disease. And, you know, the methodology statistics kind of was always a good income. So besides having this self-taught breathing and jhana practice, what did you then do in a more formal sense for your meditation training? I met 
Darlene, my wife, back in 79, and she was teaching sacred movement. She was part of the fourth way uh, tradition at the time. She was in with E.J. Gold and the Gurdjieffian kind of tradition. And so we spent probably 10 years or more in that tradition where she was getting those teachings, and so was I with E.J., we also spent another 10 plus years in Sahaj Marg, which is a heart-based meditation. And I guess right at the beginning, like when I was 19 and you know stuff, we went down to Kema Ananda's retreat center and did a 10-day Vipassana retreat, which was really one of those interesting coincidences to find out that Chula Dasa had also studied with Kema Ananda. So started out in meditation, then Buddhism went off and checked all these sort of Western schools off. And then we've kind of arrived back home in Buddhism where we're more we've been learning out of the Namjal lineage of the Karmakegyu tradition. There's a whole bunch of his students up here in Manitoba. Just out of curiosity, do you know Shannon Stein? Oh, we do. Yeah, she's a relative latecomer to our group, but she's certainly made an impact and is becoming you know, a very good teacher in this tradition. Yeah, I think you guys were there with the fire casinos in uh, Denman Island. That's right. And for my upcoming retreat there, she helped to organize that. Shannon's great. So that's the Manitoba connection is in effect. Yes. And she's also connected up with Chula Dasa and gone there for retreats. And Darlene, my wife is actually out there at Demon Island now. She's about to start her retreat tomorrow where she's teaching movement and meditation. She's also part of Junpo Kelly's Mondo Zen tradition. So she does hollow bones work as well. And that's in Seattle, or where is that? Junpo is in Wisconsin. Good. So I presume that at an early point in both your practice of meditation, maybe your more formal practice of meditation in your study of psychology, you started to think about the interaction of these two disciplines. How did that start to unfold for you early on? Oh, that started really early. And I'll go back to being a late teenager. And if you can imagine hanging out in a meditative state for hours at a time, eventually I would basically lay down at you know nine o'clock at night to meditate and I would stay awake all night watching myself breathing and you know watching the sleeping process. And depending on where I shifted my attention, I could wake up in my dreams and have lucid dreaming. I could, you know, hang out with the energy flows, have kundalini surges. I could go into what I, after talking with Chula Dasa, realize were kind of cessation events. But there was another phenomena there that people referred to as astral projection, where, you know, you literally feel like you're leaving your body. And whether that's real or not, I don't know. But I can also see it as my emotional system's virtual reality place where you get to explore the contents of your consciousness from a, you know, a lived experience in a dynamic unfolding world that you appear not to be making. But it was in there that I started realizing that I was getting drawn to certain kinds of events and situations in that world. And some part of me just clicked and said, you know, you don't understand your emotions well enough this is kind of dangerous. And it took me a, six months to sort of start bringing that process to an end so that I didn't feel like I was moving into those other realities all the time. And I kind of started my quest to understand the emotional system. And my first research in psychology was on the cognitive unconscious, doing research on priming and the unconscious brain and communication between the hemispheres and repression and things like that. So I sensed there was an important link, but I didn't really understand it. Almost retrospectively, I could see this continuity of my 
interest in what started off from my meditation experiences in trying to understand the brain. So it's been going on a long time and it's gotten, I guess, much more formal in the last decade or two as more and more people are talking about that relationship. Good. So can you begin to unpack a little bit this theme that I've been working with in the podcast for the past several months of sort of what meditation covers versus what psychology works with and where that then diagram overlaps and where it really doesn't as far as your opinion? Yeah. And I can talk about that specifically, or I can put it in the context of Wilbur's four dimensions of spiritual growth kind of context, which might be a better context to do it in. Sure. Go ahead. I love Wilbur stuff. Yeah. So a little while ago, you know, the revelation that came out of Wilbur's work with all these spiritual teachers and trying to understand, you know, as I paraphrase it, why do, you know, advanced spiritual beings still do dumb things? (laughs) They kind of looked at the idea that enlightenment wasn't a final completion process, which I know you know. Yeah, I was going to say, duh. Yeah, duh. But, you know, when you look at the response to Chula Das's interview, you can see that this is a little bit shocking for a lot of people, right? Yes. So what they've come up with is that not only do you have to wake up, which is the enlightenment process, but you have to clean up and grow up as well. And then he's got a, a fourth facet that I see a little differently. He says you need to show up. I say that you kind of need to look around. There's a lot of parallels there. So it's wake up, clean up, grow up, and look around. But that's not an up, Doug. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. It's not an up. It may never take because of that. Uh, (laughs) If you look at a lot of the different spiritual traditions, they tend to specialize in one of those categories. So if you look at Theravadan, or a lot of the Buddhist stuff, it's very much about waking up. If you look at maybe the Christian traditions and the emphasis on service and maybe the Mahayana, there's a kind of cleaning up thing. You give up your own personal you know, needs and inclinations in service for a greater good. The developmental one, we don't really have much tradition there that kind of came into our awareness with developmental psychology. And maybe you have some insight if there's any traditions that kind of look at helping people grow up, so to speak. I feel like developmental psych is kind of a new thing in the world. Yeah. I wonder, as we look at some of the teachings, whether we might start to recognize some of that. But for right now, it just seems to be like it's a new thing that we're trying to figure out how to actually intentionally teach, which is an interesting notion that you can actually teach people to grow up, just like we're teaching them to wake up or clean up. And the fourth one, which is the look around, I would say a lot of the shamanistic traditions and the Tibetan traditions are all about looking at the full cosmos with a K, all of the different interior and exterior states and the cities and the shamanic powers and other beings and entities and things like that. So those four facets seem to cover the entire realm of experience and learning that we are going to go through as creatures, as human beings. And I think the cleanup part is something that where there's maybe been some acknowledgement of it, the ways of doing it haven't been as clean, as crisp as what we kind of had been developing with our uh, therapeutic methods from Western psychology. So Chula Dasa and other people, I'm saying Chula Dasa because of your interview with him, 
He's had all of this time doing the waking up process, 40 years of meditation and disidentification from material. And it was interesting when I worked with him to find that there were still like structures in his system that were distorting his perception of reality that, you know, even if it's in a minor way, was enough to cause some suffering in him. And why that doesn't show up in meditation, I think is similar to what we've discovered about developmental structures. They're just very, very hard to see without lots of data and data points, at least for the developmental stuff. Isn't it the case that they're kind of transparent from within? You're seeing through them, so they're very, very hard to notice from within the structure. Yes, and we didn't get to see the structures of developmental stages until we got lots of data. And I think the work that I'm doing with what I call feeling beliefs is actually getting into deconstructing the self at a level that's hard to do in meditation because when you're meditating you can watch yourself create perceptions you can watch yourself create thoughts and you can watch your habits emerging and you can deconstruct you know some of those thought processes and tendencies but we're very seldom in a meditative situation like you know where you can be in a deep vipassana type process and socially engaged. So the structures that we would have for our relationships with people kind of go latent in meditation. And they're not really seen because they've gone quiet. And then when we get up from our chair and we're interacting with people, they wake up. And if you've got a lot of mindfulness, you can kind of corral them down or notice them but you're not really in the same position to deconstruct them in the same way, at least not in the real-time process that you can do while you're meditating. The other way that I've looked at it is it's kind of like an eye, like, you know, a literal eyeball can't see itself. It can't turn. You can look at your hand, you can look at your knee, but you can't look at your eye without a mirror. And I think it's similar. Our psyche can't look at itself looking at things even if it's really, really rarefied. And you only really see those distortions when you're in relationship to other people because they're distorting the world in a different way, right? Or not distorting and you are, and then that friction kind of emerges. So I think that's one of the reasons that it's so difficult for this cleaning up material to show up in meditation. Now, would you put this relational material, these relational structures, these aspects that turn on or wake up when you're in an interpersonal interaction, is that solidly in the cleanup box or does it also fit in the grow up box? Oh, there's definitely components of this in the grow up box, but that's a whole other story, like in terms of learning how to see those developmental limitations i don't know if you can do that without actually studying the developmental stages and using them as a mirror to see where you are and then looking at the characteristics of those stages to see oh gee do i do any of those things unconsciously right like i've done a fair bit of work deconstructing my own stages through just studying wilbur's maps and it's been very very helpful when I first started working with people in California, it was quite a wake-up call. I was doing life coaching with entrepreneurs, and the culture there is very different than the culture here in Manitoba. 
and the examples. You think? There's <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit. So I would have examples in my PowerPoints and stuff that I used to use, and they just did not land at all when I showed them in California, but they really resonated with people in Manitoba. And when I looked at it, they were developmental differences. I had a lot of examples from traditional and modern stages of consciousness. And in California, they're so deeply embedded in sort of postmodern ways of looking at the world that they really see the world differently. They don't relate to the same kinds of examples that I was giving. So in general, the relational material that you're describing here is about cleaning up. Yeah. It's the parts that you can't parse out of your psyche just from looking at the developmental stages. So like, you know, if you find yourself thinking in black and white terms a lot, or if you find yourself judging people a lot or judging yourself a lot, that would suggest that developmentally you've got a lot of traditional or amber kind of activity going on in your system, because that's a characteristic of traditional rules and roles. So you can kind of look at the characteristics of that archetype and place it on yourself and go, gee, why do I judge people so much? Or why am I so judgmental about myself? Are there ways of seeing more of the grays instead of blacks and whites? And there's exercises that you can kind of do to wake up out of your developmental stage, whether it's the modern achievement or the postmodern stages. But the psyche stuff that I'm talking about in terms of cleaning up I think when you're doing deep meditation, the purification part that Chuladasa spends a lot of time talking about in his book, The Mind Illuminated, it can get what I would call the trauma states, the deep emotional feeling impressions in your system will start to unravel. And if you've got the right tools, you can go through that fairly quickly. And if you don't have the tools, you know, you might get stuck in what Daniel Ingram refers to as the dark night of the soul for, you know, weeks or months or years where you've just got this emotional activation that you can't resolve often from traumas or whatever in your psyche. The part that doesn't seem to get stimulated in that meditation process are what I call feeling beliefs. And they seem to be emotional impressions that you got in your system as your psyche was going through its sort of primary formational years. So usually young childhood, they're feelings that you generalized about yourself and the world. And they become part of your psyche so that they are who you are as you look out in the world which is different than having a trauma where I'm a 20-year-old man who was in a car accident or, you know, had my girlfriend break up with me and I go through a deep emotional trauma. Then I know that I am me having this emotional trauma and I need to work it out. But if it happens when you're a child, you tend to incorporate or interject those feelings into your sense of self and they are very, very hard to see at that point. Right. It's more of a worldview or an attitude towards your life that's kind of all the way down at the bottom, the foundation of your mind. Exactly. Yes. I have a little aphorism that I've made up that kind of captures this. And it's kind of a pith teaching in the sense that it contains a lot in a very short, probably longer than the Buddha would take phrase. Any intense interpersonal encounter that you don't fully experience and express which means resolve, will become part of your sense of self 
and or worldview instead of something that happened to you. Right. That's very clear. So how do we make use of this understanding of feeling beliefs? Is that something we can get at at all in meditation besides just kind of triggering it? Or is it something that we must come at from another angle? I'm thinking here, for example, in the way that we're taught in the Shinzen tradition, we do quite a bit of meditating on body sensations of emotion and then tracking how the emotion is interacting with thought and feeling and so on. It does tend, in my experience, with a lot of application, you can actually begin to get at some of this, but maybe your experience or understanding is different. Mm. I'd love to know if you could maybe be a little bit more specific in what kinds of things you've managed to unearth in that process, just for my own interest and even just see where what I'm doing is different, if you don't mind. Sure. An example that comes to mind is what I would call a negative life review which is something that used to happen to me where, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're kind of chewing on all the ways that you are a bad person and all the horrible things you've done. This would happen every once in a while, but it was interesting because the Shinzen method of really elaborately deconstructing this into parts, like the mental visual component, the mental verbal component, the regular type body sensations, the emotional body sensations, gave me the tools over time to do like a full cognitive deconstruction of that, like observe it over and over and over and see that it had this very interesting property of seeming really intense and also insight producing. Like, oh yeah, no, it's really true. I really am a bad person. Like in this very poignant emotional way. But by observing it over and over, I realized there was actually never any new material in that. It was like a false positive where it was actually very mechanical, very rote, kind of coming out of this deep childhood belief and presenting no insight at all. And so by working with it in this way, like very carefully over a long period, it eventually got very depotentiated. Like I would still notice the characteristics arising or these qualities arising in those four sense gates, but there was no juice to it anymore. And then over time, it just stopped happening completely. So that's what I'm thinking about when I'm describing this. Wonderful. That's a great example. And I recognize some of the pieces and I'm starting to frame how I would conceptualize what's happened, but I'm going to ask a couple questions, which is you said you got to some early childhood stuff. Were there any specific memories where you've kind of first felt that way, that I am a bad person kind of feeling? No, I was just assuming that it was a childhood belief and it wasn't coming up as childhood material. It would be more starting out with teen material and just containing a real sense of shame and, you know, that deep sense that there's something fucked up about me that could never be fixed, you know? And because it, it had that sort of, wow, I can't find any cause. I can't find any actual, this is all data being used after the fact to kind of prove something I already believe for some reason. Right. That's why I started assuming this must just be very, very old. Yeah. And so you've got what I would consider, you've grabbed a feeling belief by the tail, so to speak. You've got the first part, which is I am bad or I am a bad person. And you seem to have kind of whittled it down by kind of 
pruning all of the branches and twigs and stems and eventually the main stem and it no longer kind of grows. You can kind of kill a, a tree by just pruning it back every time it starts to pop up. The method that I tend to take is to do a process that I call feeling your way through a problem, which is different than thinking your way through a problem. And the process you're doing, which is more like a contemplating your way through a problem, I, I don't know if that's a good depiction, <laughs> or deconstructing your way through that problem. It does involve, you know, contacting the emotion very directly. So there's a large feeling component, but I don't know if that contradicts what you're saying. No, that would be good. That would be part of how I would approach it. But I would tend to sit with the feeling energy, I am a bad person, and just repeat it out loud as if it were true. And then in that space, begin to have memories or examples of where you've been a bad person start to emerge. And usually there'll be an example or a whole bunch of times where, you know, to be bad basically means you've broken some sort of rule, usually of your group, but at least of the vision that you hold for yourself of what it means to be a good person, right? So a bad person has broken a rule of what it means to be a good person. Yeah. Let me just interrupt there and say, again, this doesn't come up anymore, but when it was really alive for me, it's sort of like the process you're describing was just happening on its own, where it would start to just generate that statement that right. I'm a bad person and these memories would come up. But what I noticed is that the memories were actually just supporting the belief, but the belief was like of a kind of fundamental brokenness, yeah. right? Just there's something wrong with you, that kind of thing. It was very, very simple and sharp. Yeah, I am broken. Right, exactly. And fundamentally broken. Like if you really saw, you'd see that it's just flawed. This is an area that I've been curious about because it shows up with some people. I Sometimes I can't deconstruct it further than I am broken. I am fundamentally flawed. I am fundamentally broken because this shows up with some of my clients. As we work with it, it'll often sort of shift over to, you know, there's a fundamental inadequacy in me. Like I'm an inadequate human being. And in fact, I'm just looking at some of my notes here. And that's one of the examples that I had someone that I was working with where I am an inadequate human being. I am fundamentally broken. And that turned into an, I don't deserve to have my needs met. I don't know if that's something that you resonate with, but that's kind of the nature of feeling beliefs, which is that, your sense of self takes in these impressions from somewhere. I suspect this came from somewhere and they get incorporated into your sense of self. And what I try and do is journey back to that point at which they showed up or at least as early as we can. And there's usually some traumatic event or series of events that needs to be spent time with so that you kind of go back and process, fully experience and express the thing that happened to you when you were 13 and you did that thing to so-and-so that made you feel like a bad person who should just never exist. You know, like there's some sort of feeling impression that you generalized and it became part of your sense of self. 
it's unusual for these kind of things to generalize as you get older because we don't have the same kind of connection to our emotional system as we did when we were young. And that's one of the interesting things to think about why we have such a tendency to be biased towards negative impressions. My experience is that most people tend to close down their emotional systems when they're fairly young and they become much more intellectually oriented. Do you know what I mean when I say kind of close it down and become more intellectually oriented? Absolutely. I mean, that's how we get paid in our society. Yeah. Now, that's also, it turns out, becoming a generational thing where a lot of young people aren't closing down in the same way that our generation did. And that's kind of causing another set of challenges for them, which is to how to be in the world with this open, sensitive, emotional system. But for those who close down, which is a whole couple generations that are still living, once you've closed down, you don't really feel the world in the same way. You don't experience the emotional energy as fully and as unbuffered as you did when you were a child, which means you're not taking in new impressions, which means that if you're in a loving relationship or being appreciated at work, they're not necessarily coming into your emotional system. They're bouncing off your intellectual kind of armor there. If you have a feeling of, you know, worthlessness or insignificance, you might be compelled to keep doing things that make you feel valued or you know significant. But if you don't actually update the impression, you're just in this endless cycle of looking for things unconsciously that will make you feel valued or make you feel significant. Yeah, you just have to fill the empty hole there. Yeah, it's like trying to fill an emotional hole with behavioral activities and it doesn't work. So we get caught in these kind of weird dynamics with people and things basically playing out a feeling belief that if we actually knew how to feel our way through a problem, we could update it and take in new impressions so that we're not plagued by that feeling belief anymore. Now you have a list of, what is it, nine basic? Uh... I call them core feelings, which are different than emotions. Emotions are the fourth emotions that we know about you know, happy, sad, angry, fearful. But the nine core feelings, this is actually where I think my background training as a methodologist and researcher really kind of gave me a different perspective on my clinical practice when I first became a clinician. I literally spent the first three years of my clinical practice collecting data <laughs> from my clients, you know, as I was taking them through the standardized Gendlin's focusing process. Are you familiar with Gendlin's work? Just a little bit. Living in Berkeley, I have met people involved in that. And I also had the book when it came out way back when, that old paperback with the pebbles on the cover. Yes. I was doing that because it was a very powerful kind of process. And people would come in at the time. I had a lot of people with psychosomatic kind of problems or chronic pain issues. And so we would focus in on the body and find words that what he called resonated or with the felt sense that they had. And I modified it a little bit to continue past the body sensations into the emotional context and trying to find the essence of the pain that they were upset about or crying about. And so I would literally 
you know, have people finding words and they might say, I'm angry at so-and-so and well, okay, there's a lot of charge. Does that feel like the essence of your pain? Is there more resolution that we can bring to that? And well, I'm mad at them. I feel rejected and dismissed and they might be crying more at that point. You know, so I'd stop and say, does rejected feel like the essence of your pain? And they go, oh, not quite. So then we'd continue the process. And then maybe from rejected, they'd get to, I feel insignificance. And then they'd be sobbing. And I'd say, is that the essence of your pain? And they'd go, yes. And I'd write that down. Now, interestingly, when they got to that feeling of insignificance, spontaneously, they'd have memories from childhood usually where they had been treated like that and didn't get the time and attention that they felt they needed from their parents or something. And so even back then, without me kind of being aware of it, you know, this thread of emotional feelings and feeling beliefs was kind of going all the way back to when we were open and vulnerable and taking in emotional impressions all the time. So I kept doing this for three years. And I think, you know, I'd, I'd like to actually go through my notes because I have them. But what I believe is in the first year, I basically had five words that were the essence of everyone's pain. And then by the second year, I had another three. And then the last one that came in the third year was bad. It was a rare thing, but usually when bad comes in, it's hard to get rid of. <laughs> so you did a great job there, Michael. <laughs> yeah, it was a harrowing process, but it did actually complete. Yeah. So. So that was how I came up with what I call the nine core feelings. And they seem to be how our emotional brain is wired to perceive our relational status with other people. And that's why those core feelings tend to be associated with our deep feeling beliefs. The feeling beliefs, the structure seems to be something about yourself and then something about your relationship to the world. So it's almost x and y so it's like i am alone and worthless and i don't deserve to be loved there's our relational status i don't deserve love which is also relational right so there's core feelings and interpersonal feelings that tend to be mixed together in the feeling belief which we incorporate into our sense of self what are the nine core feelings you unearthed I put them in order because I actually think there's an order, but I'm not going to depict that order as I go through them. And if people are listening, they can actually say these out loud. I am alone. I am inadequate. And depending on whether you've got deep impressions, you may find your body resonating or getting activated by those words. So as I go through them, we can use this as an exercise for your listeners. I am insignificant. I feel lost. I feel helpless. I feel worthless. I feel a loss. And sometimes it's an emptiness. If you've had a loss for a long time, it tends to be an emptiness. So sometimes if you're looking for kind of your psychograph of what you're programmed with, You'd say, I feel an emptiness inside. And that might bring up tears if it's actually there. I feel bad or I am a bad person. And that can be contextual. I'm a bad wife. I'm a bad daughter. I'm a bad husband. 
And then the last one is hopeless. I feel hopeless. And hopeless is an interesting one because it almost always, if you feel hopeless, it's good to look to the next level, which is what of the other feelings are you in that you believe will never change. So if you feel alone is the hopelessness about always being alone for the rest of your life. Or if you feel insignificant or worthless, is it about that will never change? One of the reasons I bring that up is because hopelessness is, at least last time I checked the literature, was one of the best predictors of suicide. And so it's like, in a sense, we can take and bear feeling worthless or alone or insignificant or inadequate as long as there's a sense that it's going to change. But if there's a sense of hopelessness and that we're always going to be like this, then suicide starts looking like a viable option, which of course it's not. But from that space, you can see why people kind of move in that direction. The pain relief lies yeah, in that direction. Because yeah. who wants to be alone or worthless forever, right? With no hope of yes. ever changing. Yeah. So now you've got these nine core feelings. Are these mutually exclusive? Seems like you're saying you could have many of these at once. Generally, they tend to show up in one or two at a time. If you look at them contextually, they're kind of pointing to different dynamics. So any given situation will generally only elicit a, you know, one, two, or maybe three. I haven't actually looked at that too closely. What has happened though, I've got a Google Forms document that I think Daniel put up on his site where people could fill out their assessments of how much they resonate with these things. Most people, they have one or two that sort of resonate deeply and the rest are under two or three. But the odd person has six or seven or eight that are all high. That usually means that that person's in pretty rough shape and probably needs to be in therapy. Like you can have one or two of these impressions high and be a functional, healthy being. But if you've got you know, five, six, or seven of these things high, it probably means you're suffering a lot and not that functional and need help. Good. So again, this is what you've discovered can exist in even a meditator who's been meditating for decades. There can be these deep feeling beliefs, these core beliefs that are kind of like hiding out in there, as it were. What was interesting with Chula Dasa, and I'm not going to go into his exact you know, feeling beliefs that we worked with. And it was interesting to hear his talk and depiction of the process that we were going through. I'd kind of worked with him a little differently than others because I never knew how much time we were going to spend together. And so I facilitated his process a little bit more than I do with most people. So it was interesting to hear him depict that and how some people saw this as like internal family systems and things. But the interesting thing was that Chula Dasa, and I think most of us have ways in which our feeling beliefs kind of get incorporated and hide behind aspects of our relationship. And so Chula Dasa had one about himself and I don't know if it was not feeling worthy or significant enough to, you know, look after his own needs, but you can see how that kind of feeling belief, let's just pretend it's like I am worthless and don't deserve to be loved, which is just a common one that I run across how that would kind of hide behind the bodhisattva vow, how you could put yourself second all the time. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. 
Yeah. So some of these things that hide, I think, is because they're almost like viruses that find a way to go behind some healthy tissue and not get detected, right? It sort of puts on this noble service facade and gets to hide out so that no one notices there's a dysfunction in there. Until, of course, you realize you're not weighing your own needs as equally as you are all the other beings out there, and that's causing an imbalance in the system. Good. So let's say we have quite a number of meditators who want to start working with this kind of material. Are there other existing interventions that you think do something similar, or is your system the only way to get at this? Well, you found a way to get at and work through this deep feeling belief about I am bad. It's probably different than I would have approached it and maybe took you longer but you clearly did it, right? So one of the things that I've said about the bioemotive framework is that it just is a good adjunct to put on to any other system that you're using because it increases your conceptual resolution of what's going on. So I have my way of working based on my framework and I see lots of other people going through healing processes even if from my point of view, it's a little bit more indirect, but they're still getting healing. I think what this offers is the ability to go in with more surgical precision, because I think I've kind of deconstructed the nature of the processes a little bit more deeply. But, you know, that's something that science and time and more interaction is going to tell. So what do you think this looks like when someone starts to transition from, let's say, a long-term meditator or a deep meditator who has a lot of contact with emptiness and really has done quite a bit of the waking up component already, as they start to really get traction in the cleaning up and moving into a real cleaned up kind of space also, what's that look like? As in, how is it different than when people start doing the cleaning up and purification when they're early in their meditation? No, you know, what changes about them? How would we know the difference externally seeing someone who has done the cleanup versus has not done the cleanup, even though they may both be quite awake? Well, I mean, at the grossest level, it comes back to the original insight that the integral community, you know, had, which is if you haven't done the cleaning up and the growing up part, you're still going to do dumb things. So interpersonally, you might get involved with students and have sexual relationships or financial scandals and things. Those are likely you playing out your feeling belief issues with the sangha. Sometimes it's subtler. I mean, clearly it's often subtler. So on the grossest level, you're going to fuck your students less and steal less of their money and just be generally less of an asshole. Yeah. And there's two things that you can do. With mindfulness, you can notice that you're wanting to have relationships with your students or you can notice that you're you know, wanting to take, you know, financial resources for your own personal use. I think Shinsen did a great job in one of his talks of talking about how he had been kind of warned of these three pitfalls that you can fall into when you start becoming a well-known teacher. And he fell into a fourth one that no one told him about, <laughs> you know? Yes. So there's an example of just having a framework that helps and then you can like monitor your behavior but what I tend to do is like use those tendencies as a basis of inquiry to start what I call this feeling your way through a problem process. So 
you know, I gave examples, I think, with Daniel Thorson, where if you find yourself thinking about a certain thing in meditation over and over and over, and it's hard for you to pull your attention back, then you can ask yourself, well, what feeling seems to be at the base of these thoughts? What feeling would make me want to think these things? So if you're constantly thinking about the way your boss shortchanged you at work, and you want to get even with them or, you know, do something where everyone sees how great and brilliant you are, you'd sit with that and say, well, what feeling wants to be playing out here to get that kind of experience? And it's like, you know, if I just go quickly through this, it's like, well, I feel disrespected and insignificant if you kind of deconstruct those relationships at work. And so there's this deep sense of needing to feel significant. So you just hang out with like, I feel insignificant, right? And if you can trace that unresolved feeling belief back to its origin and actually work with it directly, you can undo it or you can update the impression. It usually involves some crying and some, you know, memories of earlier experiences. But once you realize that you're not all alone and worthless and you know that you felt you didn't deserve to be loved was actually just one experience you had as a child that you overgeneralized it sort of updates itself and then the energy that you've been putting out into the world trying to find ways to feel significant and loved and valued kind of stops being so compulsive I guess what I'm saying at a practical level is, you know, our behaviors and our thoughts, as I've come to see it, seem to be driven by our emotional issues. And so if we find ourselves acting in certain ways, behaving in certain ways, or thinking in certain ways, they're cues to do this emotional inquiry. So you wouldn't want to just stop having relationships. Well, you want to stop, but you don't want to end it there. You want to like deconstruction <laughs> as to why I feel like I need to have this deep intimate relationship with my students. Is it because you've never felt loved and respected or exalted in a certain way? Or are you missing a deep intimacy in your own life? Like there's going to be some emotional basis for these things that is an opportunity for you to do that deep dive and clearing process. One of the things that does happen when you do it, I think you asked this earlier, is that it does seem to free up vital energy. So I worked with Chula Das and I worked with actually another advanced meditation teacher, I would say of the same kind of status as Chula Dasa, actually three of them all together. And each of them kind of said after doing this work that their Sangha noticed a difference in how they were showing up. There was a little bit more life and buoyancy and engagement and more vital energy kind of flowing. There was a spring to their step in things and, uh, a presencing that was more relational than it had been in the past. So there's something really good about doing this work that even if you've been meditating for years, it still seems to free up some of that energy and bring about even more of a radiance than what these people already had. Fascinating. Now, what resources do you have available that are not just, you know, one-on-one -on -one work with you? Oh, uh, we've got a handful of them. I've got, you know, things that I charge for and I've got a lot of free resources. So you know, there's a whole bunch of podcasts and radio interviews that I've just done recently that I've got on my website under the videos and podcasts. And there's probably three or four hours worth of material there, or probably more. 
and they'll overview a lot of this. If people want to go into more depth stuff, I've got a self-paced course, which takes you through a video series that overviews all of the dynamics about the emotional system as I've come to see them in a journaling process. I've got an ebook on the Nadura process, which is basically how to get your emotional system up and running properly so that it resolves things. It's sort of what kids do, but then we lose as we grow up. And I've broken that natural healing process into a six-step process that we've got in a book. And then my daughter, Allie, has been doing this since she was a teenager, and she's 31 now. She leads courses for me, online courses. There's one called the six-week crash course on emotions, and that's now a prerequisite for her longer monthly group activity where they're using circling to kind of look at we space and get at some of the more of the deconstructive aspect of our relational dynamics with people. Let me just ask you about that. In the Bay Area, circling is a big deal. Of course, guys, Sangstock is here. I'm curious if you feel that's helpful to do any of this kind of work or what's your opinion about that process? I have not been an active circle. I've experienced it three or four times and I've had clients that have done circling, lots of exposure indirectly. Even when I was in Vermont at this retreat and I watched some circling, I see it as a kind of vicious activity. You know, and this is from my point of view as a therapist where that kind of deep expression and sharing happens in a much more safe container. But the circling seems to get really deeply at some of these core feeling beliefs. It kind of cuts through your armoring and, in my experience, sometimes your flesh and leaves you kind of wounded without actually giving you a tool to heal. It's like you're just left with your own fortitude. And, you know, Ali took a training program in circling, and so we were offering it here. And we decided that we had to kind of filter people on two dimensions. One was their developmental stage. If they weren't at least center of gravity modern with a fair bit of postmodern, we felt they were kind of dangerous to let into a circling community because at traditional and even a modern, you're still fairly self-centered. It's hard to take a second person perspective and you may not weigh your words and how they're going to affect someone in the way that might be appropriate. So I think circling is actually a postmodern and second tier activity that is being done by people who don't have those skill sets. And some people seem to be being damaged by that process. So you think it might not be skillful for all humans? Not for all humans. I think it's a great, like I said, second tier and maybe postmodern exercise to really explore that interrelational world. And the other thing is that it does leave people in very raw states. And I think unless you've got some explicit tools on how to heal, it's maybe not necessarily the best thing to be ripped open and then left there. One of the things that happened in Vermont, because they're very much into circling, was after learning the bioemotive and the Nadura process. Now, by Vermont, you're talking about the monastic academy, correct? Yeah, I did that workshop there with Ali and my wife for a week, and we taught the basics of this system, particularly with, in relation to meditation. But the thing that they really walked away from was the Nadura process. So when they did circling and it opened up a deep kind of wound or insight, and have you done circling, Michael? You must have. I actually haven't. Oh, wow. You should try it. It's quite an experience. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to connect with here, so I'll give it a shot. Yeah. 
And, you know, it's a really good way to get, you know, feedback about how you're showing up in the world and how you affect other people and how they see you. And some of that can be very unnerving. And what people now do at the monastic academy is if they get deeply triggered in a circling context, they'll pause the circle and make a decision if the person wants to do a Nadura process and if they want the whole group to do it or if they want a subgroup to do it. And the feedback is that it's greatly facilitating their healing process and keeping people from sort of suffering in agony for days and weeks at a time because they can actually just resolve something in half an hour to an hour and kind of be healed from it. Uh, whereas in the past, when those wounds opened up from circling, it affected them and left them discombobulated for days and sometimes weeks. And does including that process in any way dull the sharpness of the clarity they're getting from circling? No. In fact, it probably increases it because you can go from just knowing you're wounded to actually deconstructing it down to the feelings and the feeling beliefs that you've been carrying around. It just gives you a little bit more resolution as to what that wound was about. And often because you're in a group of people who honestly love and care and support for you, you can cry and talk about feeling alone and worthless or inadequate and have people connect with you at a deep level. You can feel the sense of being valued and respected and cared for, and it updates your impression. So it's a perfect healing container if everyone knows what they're doing. Good. So do you have any online courses? Yeah, we've got the self-paced course that I mentioned, and Ali's running the online groups. And I'm probably going to start doing a weekly online program just teaching people the Nadura process, which mm. is kind of the essence of this thing. So, you know, that's about it for resources. I'm in that awkward stage where I'm still having to work my weekly job to make a living and would love to get a Patreon kind of support thing so I could sit down and write a book or two. I find it hard to go from clinical work to writing. It's a yeah. different mindset. So I've got a book or two that I need to get out, but I'm just not quite in a position to do that yet. Now, we've been talking in the context of long-term meditators. You know, here's Chula Dasa with like 40 plus years and so on presumably digging in with some of this cleaning up material much earlier, you know, is going to just help your life in general. But do you see this also increasing the effectiveness of the waking up process or the speed of it or the depth of it in any way? I totally do. Yeah. Because I had my early meditation experiences, I'm not the best test case, but like I did get married and have four kids and try and live without enough money to look after everything without holding a consultant job. So it was pretty stressful for a lot of my life. And I wasn't able to maintain my meditation practice, but I did do this clearing work all the time. Like whenever I came home from a clinical experience where I was thinking about my client and I was ruminating in some way, I went, okay, what am I feeling that's activated here? And I would do this Nadura clearing process. Sometimes it led to tears. Sometimes it was more of an insight. But I kept doing this clearing thing. And spontaneously, somewhere in doing that and listening to Ken Wilbur with his pointing out instructions about suchness and things, my mind went through a transition where I stopped having mind chatter. It just kind of went silent. And when I went a couple of years ago to Vermont and I went to do a retreat 
you know, I'd literally just been sitting once a week for an hour with my wife on Sunday mornings in a small sangha that we had. But when I went to actually sit for meditation for longer periods, I went into bliss states within 24 hours. And essentially, I think it was because I didn't have any emotional stuff distracting me from my meditation process. So it seems like the more cleaning up you can do, the easier the meditation process becomes because there's nothing pulling your attention away from where you've decided to put it. And presumably it's going to just help you feel better in your life in general, even outside of meditation. Oh yeah. I mean, that's where you definitely see it. I mean, this happens every time I see clients, especially when they're first doing it, it's very pronounced. They do one session and they find a feeling belief, do some crying, and then they come back and going, wow, I can't believe how much better my week was. Like I wasn't haunted by the same things that used to get me all the time and I'd lose sleep over. So definitely this cleaning up process just, I think, starts returning us back to where quote, we're supposed to be, <laughs> you know, without all this additional debris in our emotional system that distorts how we see the world. You asked how this relates to the waking up process. And a metaphor that I came up with a number of years ago was that if you think about free will as the ability to do what you set your mind out to do, not whether we can actually make a decision or not, but the Gurdjieffian sense of can you do what you intend to do? suppose I'm a little bit overweight and I want to start an exercise program. Well, most people can't do that. I mean, that's just a sad state of affairs. That's why 60% or more of people who buy gym memberships end up not going to the gym. So what's going on there? Well, in my world, I would say that, you know, the feeling that they had when they wanted to lose weight and that ambition they had wasn't there the next morning when they were sort of wrapped up in feeling the warmth of the bed and tired and overwhelmed by life. And there's a different feeling belief there. And so they don't get up to go to the gym. If you're really mindful, you can remember that you had this intention. You cannot identify with the warmth of the bed and the overwhelm that you have at work. And you can kind of navigate your way through those impulses not to towards your intention of going to the gym to work out or even you know in this case to go sit down and meditate so in a sense there's rocks in your system and there's waves and you're a sailboat trying to get somewhere and so with mindfulness you can navigate your craft around the rocks and through the waves to get to your goal the other way of achieving kind of your free will and ability to do things is every time you encounter a rock, kind of go, hmm, what's this rock about? And, you know, find the feeling that's in there that makes you feel like it's useless. I'm never going to lose weight. You know, I've seen people try before. And so you find the sense of helplessness that maybe you're conditioned into because you've been trying forever. So you sit there and you say, well, I am helpless and no matter how hard I try, I'm never going to lose weight. And you articulate the feeling belief. And usually if you find the right one, it'll bring you to tears and you'll remember, you know, in my case, you know, being held down by my brother's arms and legs. I was one of eight kids and having my chest tapped, you know, by them which is like a kind of form of torture, but it's fun when you're kids in a twisted kind of way. 
And I remember the deep helplessness that I went through that ended up becoming part of my psyche and affected my body also. And, you know, I found that feeling of helplessness, worked through it and cried while I was in Vermont at the retreat. And all of a sudden my feeling of being submitting to the discipline of the monastery and having to do what I was told (laughs) became a laughable kind of event for me. It's like, well, I'm here on purpose. Why am I feeling helpless and trapped? And then I realized that I was reliving a childhood thing. And so once I cried about it, and that's where Daniel and I both laughed because I also learned how to sob in meditation silently (laughs) 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 because you don't want to disturb your fellow meditators. But I released that and no longer felt trapped and helpless at the monastery. I approached being there with a whole new vitality and way of being. So in other words, I got rid of one of the rocks that was keeping me from being fully in that place and you know showing up for meditation. So if you can clear the rocks, the water gets calm because even with the wind, there's not splashing around. And you can take your sailboat from point A to point B in a fairly calm fashion. You don't have to be mindful of everything to not bump into these things. Now, in various conversations I've had with you, you mentioned crying relatively often. Is that a big part of the bio-emotive framework process? <laughs> I guess I'd have to say yes, but my bias is that it's a big part of healing in general. Yeah. <laughs> that it's kind of like one of those natural healing functions that we've turned away from and have got all sorts of taboos about personally and culturally (sighs) without getting too gross a metaphor it would be like if some people come up to you i haven't cried in years and they've kind of got a smile about about it or they think that's a good thing and to me that's like saying well i've been constipated for five years isn't that cool i see that the emotional system if you're hurt it's natural healing sequences to feel the hurt If it's deep enough, cry about it. And the crying in itself will usually do the resolving of it. You'll just feel better. If you don't cry, it becomes, as I said, it becomes a trauma that you carry with you and tend to incorporate into your sense of self or view of the world. So most of the time when people are going through this healing process, it involves tears. And it doesn't matter if you think, that you've got a lot of fear issues, or if you think you've got a lot of anger issues, the way I've sort of found those deconstructed, they also break down into tears as well. So the crying is an important part of this. Some people have a really hard time crying because there's a lot of conditioning against it. They're literally their body won't let them. And I used to think you had to cry to heal, but you can not cry and heal, but it'll take longer. As long as you've got autonomic activation, which means your emotional system is activated, it will update. But I kind of throw out the numbers that maybe three to five minutes of sobbing is worth an hour of crying. And an hour of crying will heal you as much as, you know, say seven sessions of therapy where you get autonomic flushing for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. It does seem to be a kind of cathartic discharge process. And having said that, crying isn't enough. You won't heal just from crying, from my experience. You actually have to find the feelings as well. Do you remember the co-counseling movement? 
you know, I had a bit of a glimpse of that, but it didn't really make it too big up here. I knew someone in Saskatchewan doing that. I mean, it's more complex than this, but it was crying as therapy. And I would say that's a good direction, but if you're not explicitly finding and expressing the feelings, you're not necessarily going to heal. You know, I can give an example. I was running a group for cancer patients and a woman was there who, um, I was doing a little bit of one-on-one work in front of the group and she had clearly some issues with her sister who had died five years earlier. And I said, would you be willing to like go into this and, you know, release it more fully? And she said, well, I cried about this for three years after she died and I'm tired of it. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm no longer crying all the time and I like it this way. And I said, well, you're clearly still impacted by this. And she said, yes. And I said, well, do you want to take one last shot at it and see what happens? She said, okay, sure. So we did it, found the feeling. I don't know if I could find the feeling belief that she had, but we went in, found the memory that kind of was haunting her. And she started crying. And then out of this, you know, query, she started talking about feeling like she betrayed her sister and let her down and that she was a bad person for doing that. And she really moved into a sobbing thing. And then I, afterwards I asked her how she'd betrayed her sister. And she said, well, on my sister's deathbed, I had promised I would do something at the graveyard for her. And I never got around to it. I never did it. And she started crying again as she brought that up. That was a sense of betrayal. And so she literally went and did that and then came back and reported that it felt like there was a huge healing had taken place. That, you know, in all the years of crying she'd done previously, she never allowed herself to go into that feeling of betrayal, let alone identify it and articulate it so that she could do something about it. And once she acknowledged that feeling and did it, then the healing happened and she didn't have to run away from the crying anymore. Besides crying in meditation, you know, we often get other spontaneous release type things happening like laughing or let's say kriyas where we're having spontaneous shaking or spontaneous physical movements. And in some traditions, you're kind of allowed to do that relatively quietly, but you know, you're still allowed to kind of shake or move around. And in others, you are strongly not allowed to do that. You must sit still and so on. And what do you think about the effects of those two different ways of working with it? Both seem to work in the long run, but I'm curious if you have a... Well, I would say they're working in different directions. And I think this is actually a great example to talk about. If you are forced to sit through it and not, quote, indulge in that activity, then you're really working on the disidentification process. You're learning how to not get caught up in any of this kind of activity that emerges while you're meditating, which is the point of meditation. On the other hand, if you're allowed to do the shaking and the discharging and the shivering or however it's manifesting, you're probably doing a purification work so that in the future it won't come up again. Whereas if you just do the disidentification part, you'll probably bump into it again. So that would be a cursory look at it. I also believe that if you've got that kind of energetic discharge, there's probably a good chance that there's an emotional component to it. And I would recommend that people 
just do an inquiry in that space to see if any of the core feelings seem to be activated. And if there are, let it move into more of an emotional experience instead of a third person energy experience, which is kind of how we're taught to treat it from meditation perspective. Yeah, that's interesting. Now you are a statistician and a scientist who, you know, has run experiments and so on. So I'm curious if there's any evidence basis to your bioemotive framework that you do. <laughs> that's a great question and one that I wish I was still academically positioned to write about. My criteria now is as a clinician, is it functional? And that I can certainly say yes to. When we start doing double-blind randomized clinical trials, not that you could do double-blind ones, but do I think that what I'm doing will be proven effective? I think so. Just because I've had a lot of people come to me who have tried other therapies, and then they try this and it seems to work more effectively for them. Now, that's anecdotal, and a lot of people can say that about different therapies. I will say that everything I'm doing is consistent with the research literature. You know, Edna Foya in the desensitization literature in the 80s, they were doing straight desensitization work for anxiety or trauma. And she had this interesting little observation that she made at the end of a research study that said, huh, not everybody gets better from this. And it seems like the people who allow themselves to feel what's going on during the desensitization process get better more quickly. And that little insight, I think, evolved into what became a research inquiry into experiential avoidance, where they realized that you could take people through the behavioral steps of desensitization, but unless you encouraged and allowed them to feel it, they wouldn't necessarily get better. So, you know, certainly what I'm doing is experiential desensitization to the feelings that they've been avoiding for a long, long time. There's really nothing I do that isn't consistent with the literature that I've found. And I think it just becomes an adjunct to anything that you're doing. I mean, at one level, if I wrote it up and I could do that and publish it, the nine core feelings emerged through a research study. I mean, I just did the standardized process and, you know, kept asking people, is this the core of your pain? Is this the core of your pain? Is this the core of your pain? And, you know, after three years, I just had nine feelings. I assume you weren't kind of setting them up to have these particular answers. You were just... Well, I didn't know them at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was actually difficult to find the right words because I remember in my own world not being able to differentiate hopeless and helpless from each other. Right. You know, and is the word inadequate or insufficient, right? Is the word helpless or powerless? Like it took a lot of testing to see which words actually resonated with people most deeply. And a lot of conceptual resolution on my own part to kind of get a sense of, oh, these are core feelings. And so what are all these other feelings that have been coming up? And it's like, oh, and I think my wife had this insight. It's like, these are interpersonal feelings. You know, these talk about dynamics between two people, whereas the core feelings seem to be things that we feel about ourselves irregardless of the context. So rejected needs another person. Ashamed needs another person. It's hard to feel ashamed without imagining somebody looking at you. It's hard to feel abused without somebody doing something to you. 
But helplessness, you can feel intrinsically. Worthlessness, you can feel intrinsically. So I'm pretty sure this will stand through the test of time just because I've been pretty damned rigorous conceptually on how I've approached this. And I've had, you know, 15 plus years of clinical experience refining it. And I'm curious to see if anyone ends up doing research on it. I suspect it will hold its mettle, so to speak. So as we're getting towards the end here, Doug, I'd just love to ask you, like, what are you really interested in right now or excited about? At one level, I'm really excited to be getting the bioemotive framework out into the world. And I'm really happy that people are embracing it. I've been trying to get it out for, you know, 10, 15 years, and it's not always been embraced when I've, you know, brought it to people. And it's really interesting to see how the culture seems to have changed and people really are excited by it. So that's sort of reinvigorating my excitement for it is more than just something I'm doing in my clinical practice. I think my leading edges of thinking are more towards these other models that I'm working with that are, I think, really deeply integrating my theoretical, clinical, and meditative backgrounds. And that's to really flesh out the EBIC integral model that I've been working on. I think I mentioned that to you had worked at Sounds True, and Tammy Simon, after interviewing Ken Wilbur, got his whole model out on tape. And then- Yeah, on the Cosmic Consciousness Program. Yeah. And at the end, she sort of says, okay, this is wonderful. These five dimensions here of aqual theory, you know, give me the three-dimensional model. How do they all fit? And, you know, Ken just said, ah, they don't. (laughs) I was really fascinated by that. And I made that a definite meditative inquiry. And, you know, I actually spoke to Ken Wilbur around that time and had a really interesting experience with him. But I came back and kind of really fleshed out what I call EBIC integral, which I think does provide the three-dimensional model underlying aqua and it talks about the triune brain and it kind of gives you a framework for understanding what are all the different lines of development that somebody can have and how the triune brain maps onto the different states of consciousness and how the developmental process moves through these stages i think because of brain structures. So I'm excited because I'm getting the bioemotive stuff out into the world, feel like I'm going to have more time to spend on these other leading edges for me. And that also out of EBIC integral comes the four facets, which is my, you know, wake up, clean up, grow up and look around. I think there's a little bit more mileage you get from approaching it that way because it's become the larger framework in which I do therapy and life coaching. I'm going to sit down and spend more time on it, but it seems to actually be giving me an insight into the nature of how the self is constructed and the world is constructed, which means that it's becoming a tool for personal transformation instead of just a really interesting way of seeing the world. So those are kind of my leading edges that I'm excited to be getting some time on now that my daughter's helping me get the bioemotive out into the world. I get to sort of come into these more leading edges conceptually that are probably only really relevant to teachers (laughs) and, you know, life coaches and people who are really deeply interested in the nature of reality. But they're good tools to have in your belt, you know, when you're working with people. So I'm looking forward to getting those out into a form that I can, you know, teach to people as well. Well, as you develop that further, I'd certainly love to talk to you about it on the show here, since that's an area of deep interest. Excellent. So thank you so much for being willing to share of your time and ideas so freely. I really appreciate you coming on, deconstructing yourself and talking with me. 
Well, and I appreciate the opportunity and I'm really loving your community and the kind of interplay that's happening and how people are assimilating these ideas and grappling with them and trying to make them real and questioning them and everything. So it's just a wonderful time being able to talk about this kind of stuff. And I'm looking forward to see how people react to this interview and what kind of feedback I get. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Doug. Have a great one. You too, Mike. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat with me this summer in Costa Rica. From August 3rd to the 10th, we will come together to focus on non-dual meditation practice with a particular theme of embodiment of awakening in meditation and in life. For seven days, I'll be giving non-dual meditation teachings, practices, and guided meditations, as well as personal meditation instruction to each member of the group. The retreat will be hosted at the Blue Spirit Retreat Center, located in the Nosara region of Costa Rica's Pacific Coast. The retreat center is perched on a hilltop overlooking the ocean and a three-mile white sand beach that is a protected turtle refuge. The pristine nature, subtropical climate, and members of the Deconstructing Yourself Sangha will create a unique environment for your meditation retreat. If you're interested, check out deconstructingyourself.org where there's a link to the information page. I look forward to seeing you there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com signup or at the site 
deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R.com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. Listening.